0: We're going to be talking about another conception story today, but we won't ask for any of their details. And uh, and if you think about uh, conception for a moment, conception is an interesting thing, is it not? Um, I'm going here, I'm coming, and it. ironically, it was a wonderful segue that I had not planned, um, but I had planned this part, which was to say that Conception stories are seldom stories that we want to spend much time talking about. More so, we don't ever really want to hear how we were conceived, (laughs) right? Yet, in Scripture, we are given a wonderful picture and a wonderful account of the conception of the promised Messiah, that is Jesus, And the reason for this story is this story is not to cause us to immediately respond with ew, or gross, or make our skin crawl, but rather this story is designed to show us the impossible favor of God. And so Luke takes time showing us a picture of the conception of our messiah and it is in this conception that we see the impossible favor of god displayed towards us and so this morning let's go ahead and stand together we're going to read this kind of second part of the gospel of luke here as we continue in our luke series looking specifically right now at luke chapter 1 We'll start in verse 26 and we'll move through verse 38, and this is what it says. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold... Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Father, thank you for the word that you have given us this morning. Thank you for allowing us to see your favor in the conception of our Messiah, your promised one. Lord, may we see this in a new light this morning. May we ponder your conception of the Messiah. May we stand in awe at the Messiah that you have granted us, named Jesus. Lord God, may your spirit move through us this morning, amongst us. Move me to the back and move you forward, God. And may it be you who is seen this morning and heard, and may we relieve rejoicing over the truth which you have shown to us in Christ. And we ask this in your name. Amen. The impossible conception of God's promised Messiah magnifies his favor. Towards us, The impossible conception of God's promised Messiah magnifies His favor towards us. Impossible Messiah favor. That's what we're looking at this morning. The impossible favor of the Messiah. Now, many of us have heard this story before. It's often told at Christmas. We speak of how the angel came to Mary, and Mary is notified that she is pregnant. And we hear this story, and we think of it often in context to Mary. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at this passage in context to Mary, but the bulk of this passage is not about Mary. The bulk of this passage and the weight of this passage is on God. And it's on God's favor towards mankind. His grace towards mankind. And so my hope this morning is as we look at this portion of Luke 1, that we would stand with awe and in our awe that we would be responding with an expectant faith as Christ leads and directs our own lives. So after appearing to Zechariah, to make it known that Elizabeth was going to conceive a son, which we saw last week. And this son would be the promised forerunner to the promised Messiah. Gabriel, the angel, comes to Mary to announce an even more miraculous event. And verse 26 and 27 points out in the sixth month, and that sixth month is not the sixth month of the year, that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now earlier, Gabriel had appeared to Zechariah, a priest serving in the temple in Jerusalem, which seemingly made sense. That's where the Israelites would go to hear from the Lord. Now, if you recall, six months earlier... When Gabriel appeared to Zechariah, it was the first time that Israel had heard a word from the Lord in 400 years. So Elizabeth is sent away, excuse me, Zechariah is sent away after serving his duty. They conceive of a child. Elizabeth is pregnant. We're told in the previous verses that for five months she kept it to herself as she pondered God's removal of reproach upon her life. And now we see Gabriel coming again. And this is the same Gabriel who had gone to Daniel over 500 years earlier. Whenever you see Gabriel in the Scripture, know that he is proclaiming the coming Christ of what is to come. And so Gabriel here is not appearing in a temple He's not appearing at the place that they would expect to see an angel. He's appearing in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is an interesting little town in Galilee. It's actually 15 miles from the Sea of Galilee, but it's six miles from the nearest large road. It's not a well traveled place. It has one well at the center of town. It was considered to be a town that had very poor water supply to it, and it was a poor town. It was very unremarkable. It is in Nazareth, and the reason that Nathanael, when the disciple Nathaniel is told by Philip that they have found the Messiah, Nathanael says those simple words, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now I'll share with you, I no longer try to compare towns or cities to Nazareth. The few times I have tried, it has cost me dearly because people have always been present from those towns. And so I won't mention a town in Sonoma County that reminds me of Nazareth so that no one can be offended. However, it sits north of Healdsburg in Geyserville. I tease, I tease. But it is that It was an unremarkable town. It didn't have a lot to offer. Now Mary is from this poor town. So Gabriel, who had just come to Zechariah, the the priest who had been selected by Lot to serve at the altar of incense in the temple. Well, that kind of makes sense. But Mary, a poor teenage girl from the town of Nazareth? This is interesting. And we're told here that she is a virgin, and her virginity is mentioned to highlight her purity, and that she had not had sex with any man. There's an immediate emphasis on the fact of her own purity, her Her righteousness. Now, this is not to say that she is without sin. She is with sin. But it's pointing to the fact that she had had, she had not had sex with any man. And she was betrothed to Joseph. And the idea of betrothal we don't really understand today, in part because we don't have arranged marriages, and in part because cultures around arranged marriages have even changed. But typically speaking, there was three steps to marriage. One was engagement, then betrothal, and then marriage. Now, engagement, I don't even think that I would call it engagement today. But engagement was where two fathers would come together and say, yes, I want my son to marry your daughter and your daughter to marry my son. Being betrothed then was then that those two fathers would come together and make a formal agreement with those two individuals, with the man and the woman, and they would vow to one another. And they would make vows to one another, and it is in that process in which the father of the male would then pay the father of the female, usually with a dowry, if they could afford to do so. And it was a legally binding agreement that these two We're going to be married. In part, betrothals were done because individuals were at a distance. In part, they were done because early in the process you might want somebody to be married for that daughter or that son not to be taken. But betrothals were done in such a way that once these vows were taken, the man would go back to his home and the woman would go back to their home and they would not consummate that relationship until the man came back for his bride to establish his own home. And the moment that that home was established, they would then consummate that relationship, formalizing their marriage. But a betrothal was a legally binding relationship. It required faithfulness. It required the fact, it required a certificate of divorce to terminate it. So Mary was in this betrothal with Joseph. Now it's important to realize that I think often we think of Mary as a woman of childbearing age in 2023. The average age of a woman being betrothed during this time was between 13 and 14. They were married and actually in relationship, in a marriage relationship by 15 and 16, typically. But betrothals, on average, took place at the age of 13. So Mary is a young woman, and this is a contrast when we hear that her her cousin is Elizabeth, right? When we think about her cousin Elizabeth that we hear about in this passage, we often think of Elizabeth and Mary kind of hanging out. Elizabeth is old enough to be Mary's grandmother, So this is unique. This is a young woman who has yet to be married but is betrothed to Joseph, probably 13 or 14 years old, and the angel appears to her. The angel immediately had appeared, earlier had appeared to Gabriel, a priest, Zechariah, one who had a great and wonderful reputation, apart from the fact that they were under reproach because of their childlessness. But Mary, Mary is a teenage girl from a poor little town that's off the road. Like Nazareth, Mary is relatively unremarkable. And yet, in verse 28 through 29, we're told, and he, that is Gabriel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, now, the word favor here is Kyrie, and Kyrie is the same word that's used for grace. It's the same way, in essence, of telling her that God's grace is upon her. Now, think about this for a minute. We would be more inclined to say that God's grace is upon Zechariah than it is upon Mary, given outside circumstances. But God's not looking at the outside circumstances. He's coming to a, a girl who is waiting expectantly. And she's pondering what is being said. Why do you call me favored one? And what in the world could this greeting be about? We can relate to Mary, can't we? God, why would you ever use me knowing me? You know me. You know where I come from. Why would you ever call me highly favored? And yet this is the God that we serve. A God who sits as king in heaven humbles himself and chooses a lowly teenage girl to be the mother of his Messiah. Well, this word troubled here means that she was greatly confused. It's not worth referencing the fact that she was bothered. It literally means to be greatly confused. She just didn't understand Spiritual blessing was often tied to wealth and prosperity in that age. We saw last week that it was also tied to what people thought was having children. And so if you were childless or you were poor, you were seen as not under the blessing of God. And this rocks her world because he calls her favored. It says, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Immediately, he addresses her concern. You can imagine for a second. Ever been in your life where God has called you to something and you're like, you got the wrong guy? I can't tell you the times in my life where there have been times where God has directed me into something. And I'm like, Lord, I don't think you got the right guy. It's not even something I want to do, which is probably the biggest reason, right? Or I'm scared, like, God, I don't have any more energy for this. You got the wrong person. God, do you realize that five minutes ago, before you prompted me in this way, that my heart was kind of cursing you or cursing the circumstance? You got the wrong person. Mary was pondering in her heart, God, you got the right person? Are you sure it's me? Gabriel, did you knock on the right door? And he says, do not be afraid. Why? Because Mary, you have found favor with God. His grace has found you. That's what he's saying. We are all in that same boat. Everyone who has their eyes open to the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's grace has found you. He found you. You didn't find him. He came to you. He drew you to himself. He found you. That is the favor of God. Matthew Henry puts it well when he says, those that have found favor with God should not give way to disquieting, distrustful fears. Oh God, you got the wrong person. God didn't make a mistake with you. He didn't. So what we see here then is God's impossible favor is summed up in the promised Messiah's name. He actually shows us his favor. The first thing he says here is, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus simply means for the God who saves And immediately she would have understood what was being said. She would have understood it in light of Isaiah 7:14, which says, "Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign: Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel." Think about this. this lowly teenage girl, all of a sudden realizing that God is going to use her." What an awesome thing! It's awesome enough that you sent your angel to speak to me to say that I'm favored, but oh by the way, I'm going to give you the blessing of experiencing the Messiah, carrying the Messiah and caring for the Messiah. Matthew 121, Joseph is told, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. This Messiah is the promised savior. God had chosen to use Mary, this teenage woman from a poor and lowly town, to birth his promised Messiah. That's favor. That's God's grace. And it's the same grace that we receive from Jesus, that he is our Savior. But this Messiah wouldn't simply be a Savior. It says in verse 32 he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. He's called Son of Most High. He's King. That this Jesus will be King. This Jesus, born of this woman from Nazareth, will be King. Now, we just saw yesterday, some did, we saw the coronation of a king in England. Now, this king did not come from a poor and lowly family. In fact, one of these king's grandchildren, what, four years of age, five years of age, is worth $4 billion dollars. The king that we're talking about, this promised Messiah, this Jesus, is coming from a poor little community in Nazareth, born of a teenage mother who is betrothed to her husband. This is a different kind of king. But this king will be called Son of the Most High. And we're told that his kingdom his kingdom will be both a fulfillment of the promise to Israel for a king over the nation as well as an eternal king over God's people." Second Samuel 7, verse 10 through 13, says, "And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more." Mary's seeing this, this isn't just a savior, but this is a king, one who is the promised king to Israel. Isaiah 16, 5 adds, then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Jesus is Israel's promised king. But he's more than that. He's more than that. He's God's heavenly king. See, Mary would have viewed the kingship of Jesus from an earthly perspective. However, Jesus' reign is not simply earthly, but it's heavenly, it's eternal. Revelation eleven fifteen 15 makes this clear when it says the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. See, Jesus is not simply savior, but he's Lord and king. He's ruler of our lives. He is real, was born of a woman and fulfills God's promise for a savior king. And Mary would have understood this in relation to his humanity. Jesus was not a spirit who was flying through walls. He was not just a made-up creature. He was a real person living. Born of a woman who was the promised Savior and King of Israel. Now you can imagine, imagine Mary's response here. She says these words, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? Now, this is different. When we saw Zechariah ask the question last week, he simply said, how shall I know this for I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years? His question was rooted in doubt. Mary's question is rooted in anticipation, expectation, and faith. How will this be? I'm a virgin. How am I going to be pregnant? She's still thinking earthly, but she doesn't doubt it. She's excited. How's your response when God rocks your world with something you don't understand? When you look at God's promises in light of your circumstances, do you rejoice? Is it with expectancy that you look forward to say, Lord, how will this be? I can't wait to see this. Or do you spawn like Zechariah with doubt? Well, here was this 13 or 14-year-old girl that expectantly and desiring to understand how this could possibly be. Well, the truth is, is that what comes next should cause us to stand in awe. Because what she's told is that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now you can, for a moment, think, Mary probably is stepping back on this one. Like, what? This is gonna be amazing. ...means to cover or to shade. It is the... The same idea of the Shekinah glory that is seen in Exodus 24:16 through 18. when the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the Lord excuse me, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the side of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. The Holy Spirit. Descends or covers Mary and conceives. There are specific faith groups today that slander this and suggest that God had sex with Mary that did not happen. It is that his glory overshadowed Mary. And the child, the Christ child, Christ incarnate, was conceived. Now, what's interesting is that the Holy Spirit conceives with Mary. This child is conceived. And he says that, that this child will be called holy. Son of God. It simply means that he is God. It means that he is God. In John 5, 18, we're told, as the Pharisees were looking for ways to kill Jesus, they say this, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. To say that you were the son of God is to say that you are God. Not only was this king earthly in his humanity, being born of a virgin, not only did he serve as an earthly savior and king, he is an eternal savior and king because he is God. He is a hundred percent human and a hundred percent God in the same way that we are a hundred percent human and a hundred percent soul. His perfection is clear. His nature is clear that Jesus is perfect because he is God. God. 21 through 22 adds, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So we have a Messiah who is both human and God. Jesus. God in flesh. Not some other mixture. Not solely human. Not solely God. But a Messiah who had to come as a perfect human to go to the cross as the perfect Lamb of God for us. That is the favor of God displayed towards us. That he is Savior, that he is the ruler and sovereign over our life our King, and that our Messiah is God, that He was perfect and holy, that His sacrifice is enough for us and our sin. He is not only the one who pays our penalty, but He is the one who counts us as righteous, as forgiven. We often don't hear this in the birth story, do we? that God was already giving us a full picture of his favor through the conception of his Messiah. You and I are no different than Mary. We too are in need of God's favor. We too have God's favor through this same Messiah. And in the same way that God made himself known to Mary, he has made himself known to us through the Messiah. Now as Mary's hearing this, imagine her wonder. Imagine what she's thinking. Gabriel, this is a lot to take in. Savior and an earthly king. This is interesting. But notice what Gabriel does. He encourages her. He says, And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. It's almost identical to God's statement to Abraham's wife Sarah in Genesis eighteen fourteen, which says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Wow. God will do what he says. And better yet, God will do things that we can't even imagine. And he will encourage us towards faith. So what's Mary's response then to this in favor? We're told that she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Understand that Mary's response here, that her fear and the coming days of all the things that could be unexpected, are completely trumped by the present favor and future favor of God. Mary is going to be slandered in the future. She's a betrothed woman who will be pregnant in a lowly town. She'll be shamed, most likely. She'll be demeaned, most likely. And we know from Matthew that Joseph, out of trying to honor her, was actually going to to give her kind of this, get away from her and give her even a certificate of divorce, and God steps in and says, no. Can you imagine today? Yeah, I got, I got pregnant, but uh, yeah, I didn't have sex. Everybody around you would be like, you're lying. You're lying, right? I know you didn't. I know you didn't. Right? And that would be our response. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. That was Mary's response. No, I'm not. And everybody be like, yeah, right. And what does she say? Understanding what's to come, she says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be as you have written, or let it be according to your word. Her response is one of submitting to God and His Word with expectant faith. You see, if God calls you to it, He will empower you to do it. If God calls you to it, He will empower you to do it. And because of that, She can look upon that with expectant faith and see that the favor of God through faith is far greater than any type of turmoil or struggle that she may face. When we understand God's favor, all these other things go by the wayside. Mary was content to be a servant of God. Are you content to be a servant of God? Where are you finding your contentment? Are you finding it in men? Are you finding it in women? Are you finding it in your children? Are you finding it in your possessions, your material likes or dislikes? Are you finding it in affirmation? Where are you finding it? Because the truth is, is we will not submit to God fully with expectant faith if we are seeking our contentment from anything other than the promised Messiah, Jesus. Mary found her contentment in Christ, in the Lord. And she was excited for the Lord's work in her life. I don't know about you guys, but if you've ever prayed, God, please don't ever call me to Zimbabwe. <laughs> Have that ever been a prayer for you, like honestly? I know for me that there are times I look around places in the world, and I'm like, God, I don't really want to go there. Like I'd like to visit, but don't make me live there and minister there And and please don't make me walk around in a grass skirt. (laughs) And you guys think I'm joking, but I'm not. Like, that is part of, like, God. And that's a conviction that the Lord, even in my own life, placed it of, like, God, Tim, are you willing to go anywhere I call you to? Are we willing to go where God has called us to? Are we willing to say that being with God and following God that that's better than any other option. Do we live with expectant faith? Christ, his promises will come to fulfillment in my life, and that his promises can be trusted. Or do I try to manufacture it myself? Do I find contentment in other things? Do I find pleasure in other things, first and primarily? Or do I expectantly look to see that when God is moving, it'll be far greater than I could ever imagine? Mary had no idea what was going to come. I can imagine that when she first saw Jesus' ministry, she must have rejoiced seeing that this truly was the Son of God and that He could do miracles beyond all things. But I don't think she ever was prepared for the day that He went to the cross. But what we know is that Mary remained faithful through the end. This lowly girl experiencing the impossible favor of God. And that impossible favor is available to us too. And that impossible favor is experienced by submitting ourselves to Him and his word with expectant faith. When God says that he's working all things out for good or that he will complete the good work which is being done in your life, do you wait expectantly for it or do you rush to get through it? What if suffering is not something that is supposed to be just avoided, but suffering is something that's supposed to be persevered and endured in? What if suffering has a greater purpose in allowing people to see Jesus in situations that could never be seen otherwise? What if suffering builds within you a faith that is so strengthened that you ought to step out and you want to go to Zimbabwe or someplace else that God is calling to you that you never thought before? Our goal is to live expectantly trusting that the promises of God will come true as we submit to him in faith. That is the impossible favor of God. You see, Philippians 1.6 says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Trust him. Submit to him. Know that his favor, as savior, his favor as savior and king is one part of it, but it is the fact that in his favor he is also giving you a Messiah who is himself God. And that a part of that favor is that he has placed his spirit inside those who have believed on him. You see, the distinction between the angels and believers are simply this. And when I speak of angels, what I'm talking about right now are the fallen angels. We're told in James that even the demons believe. Belief, as we see here, acknowledges not just that Jesus is a Savior, but acknowledges that He is King, that He is Lord. And that God did the resurrecting work. It is that our salvation is rooted in the fact that he is both Savior and King. Have we submitted to Christ? Have we confessed him as both Savior, the one who has died for our sins and been resurrected, and Lord, ruler of our life? I think the belief part is often fairly straightforward But God didn't ask for simple belief. He asked for surrender. And our faith is rooted in a belief that leads us to surrender. And they are not separated from one another. And that is clearly seen in the name of our Messiah, that he is Savior and King. And God. Father, thank you That we can see, God, your work, the bringing about of your Messiah. That your favor is demonstrated all through it. Your grace. May we be reminded, God, each and every day that you did a miraculously impossible work to bring about a Savior and to bring about a King and to give you or to give us yourself Lord God, as we look upon the conception story of Jesus, may we rejoice with you knowing that you have offered us the same exact favor, a savior, a king, and a present God who resides in us through faith. May we stand in awe of this truth today and we put God, our trust in you. And we ask these things in your name, amen.